0: The number one feature that makes the LATAM market more different than than anything else. A window-driven market in terms of liquidity. You need to recognize that in LATAM, sometimes you monetize investments not when you want, but when you can.
1: Hi, this is Pat from The Enthusiast. And you're in for a fantastic episode there with Ramiro Lozan who is a partner at leading consumer private equity and growth stage investor, Alcaturn. We drive into his investing journey, how he feels about the consumer segment and what defines the investment thesis of Alcataturn, which is such, such a, mo- a huge investment house of uh, 34 billion assets under management. And he really unpacks for us kind of what drives the decision-making inside El Catadon and how they look at long-term consumer trends and theses that then derive their investment decisions. We, of course, dive into LATAM, uh, considering that Ramiro sits on the board of Despegar and NotCo, just to mention two of those. And uh, what kind of differentiates growth stage investing in LATAM versus more developed markets and why sometimes you have to be a little bit more opportunistic when thinking of liquidity in those markets and how you nevertheless create long-term value. Because as Ramiro was saying, there's no shortage of talent and ideas, but there's a shortage of capital in the region. And that's exactly where a caraton comes in in the consumer category so much to unpack there with Ramiro it was such a pleasure having him on the show and tap into his wisdom and remember you can follow us wherever you're getting your podcasts and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Substack to always stay up to date with the latest episodes and now directly onto the show with Ramiro Lausanne partner at Mm Alcataton. Hi, Ramiro. It is such a pleasure having you on the pod today. Thanks for making the time.
0: My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me.
1: It's an honor having you on. Obviously, Alcaterton has, has played an instrumental role investing across the globe, but also uh, closer to home, I would say, in Latin America. And you're native Argentinian, then obviously had, had your career at McKinsey and subsequently joining Alcataton. I would like to kind of kick us off Uh, Dive a little bit into your personal journey and how you ended up in the world of investing.
0: As you pointed out, yeah, I was born and raised in Argentina uh, originally. I started moving abroad. I lived in the US for uh, a few years, then Brazil for another few years. Moved to Australia before heading back to Argentina. I am originally uh, an economy uh, business major. And and I would say, I would probably split my. Sort of background into, I would say, in my previous life, I spent a lot of years at McKinsey. So you could say I'm a recovering consultant still. And then I started doing principal investing. And that took different turns. I did some VC back in the early, uh, in the good old sort of uh, internet days of 1999 or so. And then um, more meaningfully after I left McKinsey uh, in 2009, I want to say. Doing private equity uh, initially independently with a you know small firm that a friend of mine and I established and then more institutionally with El Cadeton. You know, what drove that transition probably was that as much as I loved and, and enjoyed, you know, being so many years at McKinsey, just an amazing place and, you know, I have nothing but fondness, I would say, about my time there. Increasingly, I felt that there was an element of decision-making outcomes, uh, perhaps lacking. I always felt that investing and principal investing could provide that. And that's one of the things that really stood out for me. Um, You know, the the fact that you get to experience the same thrill, if you will, an intellectual thrill of, uh, you know, understanding new businesses in different categories, understanding what, how to drive value in each of those situations how to work with different people in different configurations and all of that, that you still had in consulting, but with the added element of decision-making and impact, uh, you know, immediate, concrete, quantifiable impact and, and outcomes. Um, you know, I think principal investing in that respect is like the, you know, the ultimate meritocracy.
1: Talking a little bit more about alcatadon which certainly is a sizable growth stage investor, the largest one, I guess, in the consumer category, 34 billion assets in the management, definitely huge, quite monstrous. Could you sum up the thesis of the firm in a, in a few sentences to break it down for the audience?
0: El has been around for quite some time, over 35 years now, quite sizable, as you pointed out. Um, you know, We must be at around 35B AUM these days, more than 250. Uh, investment professionals about 120 or thereabouts portfolio companies globally the claim to fame as you pointed out of, of uh, carton has been that the only thing the firm does and it, and all it does is consumer and as, as as you mentioned it is the to the best of our knowledge you know the the largest and leading consumer focused investor in the world this gets of course reinforced by our close ties and our sort of special relationship with, um, with LVMH and, and the Agno Group. So the question inevitably becomes, why consumer? In a nutshell, consumer is a massive space, explains uh, roughly 7% of, of GDP or thereabouts, depending on, on the geographies, perhaps a primary driver of economic growth. What we have seen over time is that the combination of demographics, technology, geopolitics, you throw everything into the mix, and that is constantly changing consumers' behaviors. And by doing that, opening up opportunities for growth investments. At Caditan, we like to believe that the combination of being large and global, with the fact that we are focused in consumer, but you know more importantly in categories within the consumer space, gives us an edge. Gives us you know additional insight that ultimately leads us to achieve superior returns.
1: Could you maybe double click on those different categories in the consumer space, what those are and where does consumer for you begin and where does it end? Because as you were saying, it's a a huge category. You can have retailers in there, you can have restaurants in there, right? Anything that's essentially consumer facing, where would you draw the line essentially?
0: For us, it all starts with this sort of major shifts, right? That we see, as I mentioned, you know, some of them are demographic in nature, you know, such as, let's say, aging population. Some are a combination of demographic and uh, cultural, let's say, the extended singlehood. Others are driven by technology. And of course, you know, e-commerce and and more recently, AI is a feature. To us, we, we try and translate those shifts into what we call sort of themes, right? Investable themes. So for example, the trend of Experiences over things is a theme that we identified early on. The humanization of pets, for instance, you know, another big theme across geographies. Demand of consumers for clean labels, the blurring of meals, the emergence of businesses by women for women. Those are all themes that are derived from this long-term secular trends or shifts that in turn guide us towards certain categories. Consumer of course it's it's a very broad space. Probably easier for for me to tell you what we what we don't do rather than what we do. I mean within what we do is of course anything that falls in you know consumer goods, consumer services, you know retail and restaurants, beauty and personal care, it could be apparel, it could be food, beverages, it could be media, it could be pet services, education services. It could be Uh, Well, all sorts of retail, uh, a really broad space. What is that we don't do? Well, I would say, you know, within the consumer space, probably pharma is one that we stay further away from different dynamics. You could actually make the point that drivers of of pharmaceuticals are not really consumption drivers, right? Uh, mostly, instead, they are driven by, you know, the incidence and the prevalence of certain diseases, obviously, a highly regulated sector as well.
1: Those are like really long term trends that we're seeing. These are not not some short term developments and, and hypes. This is literally you're, you're identifying these long term patterns and investing accordingly. You do minority and majority, naturally. So I'm curious to unpack that a little bit more, how that is then reflected in your structure internally. You've been saying you have these different funds geographically. Can you unpack this maybe a little bit for the audience, also for the founders that who who might be listening in, who want to reach out to Alcatel and approach them for for a potential kind of investment opportunity? How to navigate this really huge firm that Alcaton is and understand where they have to knock on the right doors and and get to the right person for for what they're seeking essentially.
0: Generally speaking, we do growth equity investments. And that is true across geography. We do have a global growth fund, which just as in many other instances, you know, perhaps has its center of gravity, if you will, closer to the U.S., uh, given just the sheer size and amount of activity of the, of the U.S., but global in nature. And I would say the growth fund is the one that does closer to Sort of late stage, perhaps even earlier stage growth equity. I would say, you know, for those in the audience who are more, you know, keen on, I wouldn't say venture type, but those boundaries have been becoming more blurred, even even in Latin as we can as we can discuss. But that's probably the closest we get to the sort of uh, earlier stage end of the spectrum. On the other extreme, we have our flagship fund, you know, the buyout fund, again, global in nature, you know, the fund that would which we did, for instance, the Birkenstock investment, just to, you know, name a, a recent one for the geographic strategies, LATAM, Europe, Asia, you know, again, each one has its own nuances. I can speak more about LATAM. I would call a typical growth equity strategy in which yes, you have minority stakes, sometimes, you know, co-control, sometimes majority stakes. It's not something that we're as, I would say, focused on uh, as other colleagues in the the space. You know, regardless, I would say, of our ownership, we try and make it a point of of retaining sort of a, a very significant say on those aspects that we care deeply about. Of course, you know, management, Capital structure, i.e., you know, leverage levels, and liquidity, uh, you know, and a, a clear exit path. I would say those three things are present in any deal we do. I cannot. I'm thinking aloud here. I I don't think we have made any investment in which we don't have a board seat and specific governance rights. This is true. You know, again from. The smaller deals we've done to the pipe we did in Despegar, for instance, during the pandemic, um, in which, um, you know, obviously Despegar being a publicly listed company in the US. So nothing really changes fundamentally, you know, in terms of ownership, minority, majority, uh, you know, co-control. It's something that we find ways to work around.
1: That's fantastic. Kind of unpacking that a little bit more. You know, on on the pod we often talk about, and and this is going slightly off script here, but... um, what are kind of the determining factor of, of success to really build lasting investment firms? You know, and Al has been doing this for many years, very much successfully, being up on its game. How do you ensure and, and that's more asking you as as a partner of the firm that Al is up there where it is today the next twenty years? What do you think are the are the main drivers?
0: You know, what one of the things that you learn when you're you've spent enough time in private equity is that you have a constant reminder of of humility if you will and and I think it comes with the territory private equity in general principal investing in general even more so in that um, it's a it's an exercise in keeping yourself in check making sure you cover all the angles that you never get you know too complacent that you are very much aware of your own biases and and that's only course talking about the things that you can control right then then we move into the aspects that you do not control and luck of course plays plays a big role in so i think as a firm and and the partners of the firm are proud of what we have accomplished so far we don't take any of that for granted and, and we're aware that keeping that place you know in terms of performance will require a lot of effort a lot of focus and some luck as well now having said that i think uh, i would imagine that At least necessary conditions for success, uh, perhaps not sufficient, but at least necessary conditions include continuing to be at the forefront of identifying and exploiting this emerging secular trends. You know, that really gives you a leg up. The fact that you have a deep understanding of the consumer about, you know, what drives their behavior, what how that might change, uh, and then drawing the implications. Making sure that you understand what that means for certain investable themes and categories. So, um, so that's certainly one. Then, once you you know do that investment, uh, I would submit that a second one is you know the amount of engagement and involvement that we we would like to leave that we we bring to the table. We like to think about ourselves as as partners more more than investors really, and as partners too. You know, CEOs, two founders, two occasionally family-owned businesses, and we try to bring the best of the firm to bear. You know, we're hands-on. We a lot of us come from a either a you know operating background, a consulting background, and again, we 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 try to make a difference in that respect. When you take a step back and you think about how how do you make returns in in, in principal investing, right? It's it's not that that many levers that you can pull. It's top line growth, it's margin expansion, it's multiple expansion, and to some extent it's leverage. And and, and we can talk about that, but that's certainly not part of the equation in, in for, for the firm. And I would say certainly not in, in Latin America. You know what and, and by margin expansion, you know, it's a fancy name, but what you mean is, you know, doing things better. You know, making sure that A, you work on the right things and B, you manage to do them better. So I would think that that's, that should continue to be a focal point of us if we we are to be successful, you know, for the next for the next few decades, which leads me to probably number three. This is something that is true for, you know, most uh, principal investors and, and human capital businesses, which is our ability to attract and develop and retain top talent and to have the people that we have work in Unison, you know within the cataton culture that is i hesitate to use the word because culture you know, tends to be you know misused or abused as a word and you know uh, it means something different for 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 everybody but uh, i would say karachin has a very distinct culture in which uh, we try and operate it has served us well and um uh, and again, you know, that's probably a third element that I would imagine that will have to continue to be true for the firm to, to be successful going forward. Fantastic advice
1: there. A Perfect segue, and, and you already kind of brought up uh, Latin America, which uh, is is your home ground still, I would say, to a fair, a fair share of, of the investing activities you do and, and the boards you're sitting on. Certainly, private equity or growth investing in LATAM functions a little bit differently to developed markets, especially when we talk about leverage. But... Then we often talk about the macro risk uh, that are playing an outsized role in emerging markets. How do you see that? And what's your approach there when you look into investing in LATAM specifically?
0: No, absolutely. When thinking about private equity in, in LATAM, there are a few things to note, right? The, the first one is, I think just the the opportunity is massive. And, and the reason I mention this is because as opposed to other parts of, of the world, there is a shortage of capital in the region that is stunning. Let's put it in, in very simple terms. So what is it that principal investing does, or private equity in this case does? I mean, it's just another means of bringing together people that have, I would say, more capital than ideas with people that have more ideas than capital, right? So in that respect, it's not that dissimilar from any other financial intermediation. Now, obviously, I'm oversimplifying this, but, but just to put it in perspective. So what you do is, you know, within that continuum of financing in which on in one extreme you have, you know, the entrepreneur who has a, you know, great idea, but no capital or You know, the small entrepreneur or small um, business owner who has been growing uh, by reinvesting certain profits um, or with some seed money from their family and friends. In the other extreme, you have the publicly listed companies that can raise equity in the stock market or that, you know, can issue, you know, a bond or that have, let's call it, very fluent access to both equity and debt capital markets. You know, within that continuum, you have our sweet spot at least, which is that portion in which you have companies that have come a long way already and that now they need capital in an amount that is not necessarily available from the current owners, not necessarily available from the operating cash flows, but still, you know, they are not at a point in which they can, you know, raise. Long term bank debt, certainly not go, you know, go public. So when you look at that sort of that portion of the continuum, you cannot be anything but excited about Latin America. I mean, the amount of family owned businesses that have come a long way, but that just lack market solutions for putting more, you know, sizable. Professional institutional capital to work is just mind-boggling. So, I would say the first message is: you know, this is a very fertile ground, you know, and and uh, it's a space that should accommodate many more principal investors than what it currently does. Okay? okay. Now that said, it's a very different environment from from the you know the U.S. and and um, and more mature markets. I mean, where to start, right? It's uh, you know you have of course. Macroeconomic volatility. You have currency uh, volatility. You have uneven enforceability of of the rule of law. No access to you know long-term financing. More gener- most you know most commonly, not easy to find management teams that are used to working with uh, you know a private equity sponsor. The map is not the terrain. So when you look from afar, you say, Oh yeah, sure. These are these are the things that you know are, are popping up on the map. Once you set foot in the terrain, you know, very different story. So, how do you go about that? Well, it's hard to be original on this. I'm going to tell you what what we try and do, but it's not that dissimilar from what most of our colleagues do as well. Of course, you try to generate natural hedges, for instance, for any specific country or currency. So. If you have regional companies, that helps. Uh, if you have a big chunk of uh, of your business coming from uh, abroad, that it's an attractive proposition. You take you know contractual safeguards. Uh, so sometimes that means investing through a preferred instrument. Sometimes you you had other sort of resources that, that again provide a certain amount of downside protection. Uh, we have local people on the ground that you know would like to again to to believe that that gives us a sort of a finer read on the local Dynamics but again I mean those are all mitigants the fact of the matter is that you are investing in in a, in a market or a series of markets that as, as we've discussed is you know is, is structurally different in our view very attractive and, and very underserved but yeah it does need uh, a more nuanced approach and let alone you know the impact of that on liquidity right which is I would argue, you know, the number one feature that makes it makes the a, a Latam market more different than than any, anything else, right? It's a it's a window-driven market in terms of liquidity. You know, you need to you need to recognize that in Latam sometimes you monetize investments not when you want but when you can, and that of course needs to be um, you know built into the underwriting uh, as well.
1: No, that's a fantastic analysis. I love the matching capital with. Uh, ideas that lack that capital. And uh, obviously, in, in that time, as you were saying, there's plenty of ideas, plenty of talent, but uh, uh, very much underserved in terms of access to capital still. What you were saying at, th- at the end also that one has to be maybe a little bit opportunistic. I don't know if that's the right word, but you were saying, okay, when there's a path to liquidity and it's not necessarily when you want it to be, when you just have to take it. Does that make you more more reactionary? Like, like, can you hang on long enough in in LATAM and really build that long term value in in Latin American businesses? There's not as many as you w- we would wish that really made it made it big and and have become big players, right? Is is that due to that that you have to be more opportunistic? You cannot be as much of a long term thinker.
0: Look, it, it's a good question. I, I don't know if I have the answer to that, Patrick. I, the whole question of um, there should be there should be vehicles that are structured. You know, definitely, you know, longer term or some other private equity firms in the past have explored the option of, you know, almost establishing a permanent capital sort of sort of vehicle, right? To 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 again to address the liquidity question. Exactly. It's almost a philosophical one. Of course, you know, as everything else in life, full of trade-offs. I'm not sure it makes us opportunistic. I do think that it makes us very sort of almost obsessively. Aware about what the exit prospect should be from very early on in the underwriting. So, in our investment committee, we you know force ourselves to think very systematically for any new opportunity about what does you know exit look like, and and make sure we have a robust uh, sort of answer for for uh, that question. That becomes opportunistic. I, I don't know. I, I don't think we fail to develop long-term value. By having this sort of this exit plan or or roadmap in place from from day one, you know we are we have very long lived vehicles. You know, we our vehicles are set up as a ten year ten uh, year term plus, you know, two uh, plus a two one year extension. So, you know, these are long cycles. But definitely, you know, it's one of the things that as the region matures, uh, you would expect to have. You know, more developed capital markets, I think that in turn, would allow for a more, you know, natural uh, transition from, you know, one set of shareholders to, to the next. So I think you already see some signs of that in certain markets, for instance, in Brazil, uh, and hopefully the rest of the region will follow.
1: Shifting gear slightly, and as you were saying, Alcatrazon usually takes sports seeds and you sit on several of those of really outstanding Latin American companies, uh, Despiga, one of them, Notco, another that is still private. So you sit on private and public boards. And I guess the corporate governance of a company shifts a lot once a company is publicly listed. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Like what what happens on the corporate governance level, on board level, once a company is listed, and how does it change these company dynamics uh that i play there
0: but i would say at the most general level it's important to to remember that ultimately the the goal of a board member remains you still are intent on creating value for for the company and for the shareholders and i would argue that the general philosophy is is also the same in the sense that whether it's not co or despegar to, to take the examples that you that you mentioned. The companies are managed by management, but by the teams. And the board provides provides oversight and it provides guidance, direction, and um and specific you know decision making, you know, depending on the topic. So you know in spirit, let's call it, you know, the role and the philosophy remains the same. Now a lot of things change when you go public first in terms of substance, there's a whole new chunk of of topics that that become um, that come into your plate, right so whether that is you know regulatory filings of course, investor relations considerations uh compliance and audit, earnings calls all of those are things that either do not exist or are materially very materially less, meaningful in in a private setting, right? In style, of course, everything becomes much more much more formal. Again, to take your example in Nutco, you know, in one board meeting, we will cover strategic issues, commercial topics, talent and people topics, and review results and discuss, you know, strategic opportunities or initiatives all in one go. Whereas if you take a public listed company in the U.S., such as Despega, you have in our case, we have a you know, strategy committee, a nomination and compensation committee, um, an audit committee. All of those committees have their own charter. Of course, you have you know, very formal minutes. I would say everything becomes much more formal, of course, with a large amount of scrutiny, which is the right thing to do, by the way, given that um, you've become public. So th- those are the things that come to mind from a personal experience, if you will. Patrick, it becomes, you know, ironically, people, you know, people are really drawn to public listed companies. You know, they, they, I think we all get fascinated by P. O. S. and the big names, etc. Uh, you know, even socially, always, uh, you know, friends or 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 acquaintances, they want to know, oh, how about this or that. Ironically, I would say the least interesting of, of them all. You know, you're, you know, when you're a board member from a public listed entities such as my case in Despegar the now, you, there's really not much you can say. At the risk of stating the obvious, you can only refer to uh, things that the company has disclosed previously that have that are part, part of the public domain. You need to be really mindful of, of the things that the company is disclosing versus the one that it doesn't to make sure that you know, you're always um, in compliance. So <laughs> in a way, it makes for much less uh, interesting social conversations but of course at the same time you feel that you are part of something uh, bigger you know that that you know makes a splash you know across geographies you know again this is a company that's present across latin america you know in every country and as such you you know it if you're driven by impact of so the appeal of, of these companies is of course um, hard to match
1: while, while we're talking about uh public markets certainly it's been interesting macro wise we've started quite hot into the year I'd say I mean fang stocks are uh, record highs and it's an interesting environment I feel but we're still kind of missing kind of the 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 window isn't quite open yet for I would say new new IPOs. I mean, Birkenstock is a great example, which, which IPO'd uh, uh, just a few months ago. Uh, when we look at, you know, 2024, what, what, what are you seeing and how do you think is it going to play out?
0: I have to confess, I can barely forecast the past. I try to stay clear of, of making predictions about the future. What I can say is, you know, we're, of course, structurally positive about the region, about Latin America, given some of these fundamental trends and features of the region. Young, urban, economically emerging, tech-savvy population undergoing the same changes in consumption behaviors that we've seen play out elsewhere. Perhaps this time around, operating in a better-than-before macro context. So you know, it's, it's hard to mer- make blanket statements about, uh, about macro in, La- in Latin America because, of course, you know, it's a mixture of different countries, different situations. But I think it's fair to say that, generally speaking, you're seeing a, a very robust, consistent set of macro policies and frameworks at work. If you go back to, I don't know, 2022, Mexico had lower inflation than the U.K. You know, that's a statement that would have been laughable. 20 years ago. If I were to put on a chart for you, you know, how currencies have performed over time since, you know, for the last two or three years, just blindly without telling you, you know, which one's which, I'm sure, you know, you would be surprised. The Mexican peso or or the Brazilian real, they have outperformed much more meaningful Currencies, uh, stable currencies in the past. So, so I think you know Latin America is having a moment in that respect, which underpins what we see in in our hunting ground. So, you know, to sum it up, Patrick, I would say, look, you know, we're not macro investors. Our investments do not follow GDP. We're category based investors, and we very much like the outlook of of um, of, of those categories in Latin.
1: Before we close, there's three questions I'm asking everybody on the podcast in the fast speed round. Would you be ready for those uh, three questions? Sure, yeah, let's do that. All right. First one, given your role, of course, who's an investor you most admire and why?
0: I'm really uh, a fan of Howard Marks from Oak Tree. Just the, the sheer sort of clarity of thoughts, the humility to understand that, you know, This is almost a batting average business. I find it just remarkable and inspiring. You know, just um, if you go through his writings, I think it's always a a sort of an inspiring, enlightening and, and fun
1: read. Second one, in one phrase, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others?
0: Well, the first one that comes to mind is one that my father used to give me, which was make sure you don't make the wrong mistakes. And of course, You know, the the tricky part was always figuring out which were the wrong mistakes because we're bound to to make some. But I think there was an incredible amount of wisdom packed in in that. I think it's important to first accept the fact that you will make mistakes, but to be clinical and focused and in in prioritizing and, and trying to make sure that those that are either very large stakes or irreversible, That you are really careful about those. And the other thing that comes to mind is one that former mentor of mine told me: sometimes being right is not the most important thing. And 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 that stuck. You know, I think um, many of us sometimes in any situation approach it as a, a problem in search of a solution or a question in search of an answer, and we try to be right. I think what stuck with me from that comment is that that's actually not the end of it. It's probably closer to the beginning of it. And and once you are right, so to speak, in the answer or, or in the solution, there's a whole new mission that opens up that it ends up being more important to make things happen. So that's another one that I that I took to heart.
1: And last but not least, three keywords that describe a successful business.
0: Sustainable competitive advantages, which, which is a term that I think uh, we tend to use loosely. You know, it's very uh, you know, consulting-like, but on the contrary, I think it's quite specific, uh, and I mean it in the sort of very much tied to the economics of business. You know, there are not many sustainable competitive advantages, uh, in my view. You know, it, it has to be either dramatic economies of scale, it has to be either, you know, a patented technology or some or protected intellectual property It needs to be a very hard to replicate brand. Uh, You know, it needs to be some regulatory license. There are a few things that really pass the test of being sustainable competitive advantages from the business that stand the test of time and that are successful for a very long time. uh, I would argue that that's, that's their common and necessary ingredient.
1: Before we close, is there anything else you would like to share with the audience?
0: No, Patrick, just, um, this was fun. Thanks for having me. And and thank you for, um, for your perseverance in making this happen. I know it's, it it wasn't easy to schedule, but, but I, um, I appreciate it. And, um, and I'm happy we did this. Thank it you was a good time. Listening Thank
1: you. to the Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show.